0: So, um, it's the week after Easter. Um, If you guys don't know, it is the week after Easter. Last week was Easter Sunday. Uh, It feels like it was a month ago already, but it's only been one week. Um, And today we're going to look, we're just going to jump right into the passage. We're going to look at the last chapter of John, John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, please turn to that. It's right before Acts, John 21. And before we read... Um, This chapter comes immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, So before we read John 1, 21, I want to ask you a question. What was this atmosphere uh, immediately following the resurrection? What was the atmosphere like? What was the punigi, right? What were the disciples of Jesus doing? And if you read chapter 20, right before 21, in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection, we don't see a lot of joy. We don't see a lot of... Celebration. We don't see the disciples going out telling everyone that Jesus is alive. What do we see? We see a lot of fear. We see a lot of confusion. We see a lot of disbelief. And there's a bunch of waiting. Following the events of the crucifixion and the burial, and even the first few appearances of Jesus after he resurrected, we see the disciples gathering and waiting around for something to happen. They're confused. They're fearful of what the Jewish people will do to them. It says in chapter 20, verse 19, that the, the few of the disciples were gathered behind locked doors out of fear. Even after they had been with Jesus for three years, even after they healed a bunch of people, even after they performed miracles, they cast out demons, even after Jesus told them his very plan that he's going to die and be resurrected, they still had unbelief. They still had Cluelessness. They had no idea what was going on, and they were fearful. So what do they do? They sit around and wait. And so this brings us to chapter 21 of John. John 21, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 19. It's a pretty long passage, but it's a good passage, so um, follow along with me. John 21, verse 1. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. We can see that in this final chapter of John, something very remarkable happens. Now these events that all happen, they're all unremarkable, taken by themselves. But when you see that they are callback, they're deja vu moments to things that have happened before, we find out something about Jesus that's very interesting. Something about Jesus that no leader of any other movement, that no other god of any religion can claim. What is it? What are these three different moments? I've given each moment a special name so that's easy to remember. Uh, The first is the overflowing fish incident. The second is the trial by fire. And the third is... The more than these declaration. So the first overflowing fish incident, the trial by fire, and the more than these declaration. So first, the overflowing fish incident. We can see in verse two that Simon Peter's with Thomas and a few other disciples. Um, it, it lists like four of them. It says Nathaniel, Thomas, the sons of Zebedee who are James and John, and two other unnamed disciples. And many people believe that it's Philip and Andrew that are the two other disciples. So here are seven disciples together, and Peter says he's tired of waiting. You know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to go fishing. So he goes back to the one thing that he's done his whole life. Remember, he was a fisherman before Jesus called him, and this is what he's best, he's, he's, he's best at doing. So he goes back to fishing. And the six other disciples, there were actually three other fishermen with him. So they were like, oh, yeah, let's go. I'll go with you. We'll go with you. So they go all fishing together at night. But here's the thing about fishing in the first century. You have to remember that this is not a technologically advanced era. It's not uh, an era with, like, machines and robots and things that can do work for you. They had technology, of course, like boats and nets. These are all technology, whether you believe it or not. Um, but that's all they have. They have a boat and a net, right? Right? They don't have the machines that can pull up the fish. They don't have machines that can do all the work for you. You just push a button and the fish drop, right? They don't have that. What, what they had back then was their body, a net, and a boat. So what they had to do, they had to throw the net out and pull it back in. Throw the net out and pull it back in. So they're doing this. It's physically to- toiling. It's physically exhausting. And yet they do it over and over and over again all night. But they catch nothing. And in the morning, they see a man on the shore, and he comes by, and he's like, hey, do you guys have any fish? They're like, no. And this man, that they don't know who, who he is yet. He's like, hey, maybe if you throw the net on the right side of the boat, then you'll catch some. And they're like, they're probably thinking like, what? Right? But they do it anyway. And what happens? They catch so many fish that it's hard to pull in. And this event that happens this morning is actually similar to what happens when Jesus first called his disciples. If you look at Luke, Luke 5, uh, verse 1 to 11. Luke is right before John, chapter 5. Um, I'll read it for you. It says, "...on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets." And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you guys see the similarity? These two events happen at the beginning and end of Peter's time with Jesus. These are the bookends so to speak, of Peter's discipleship with Christ. And it's a clear case of deja vu, right? The overflowing fish. So that's number one. Number two, the trial by fire. In John 21, uh, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Right? And they're standing by a fire. And this is supposed to evoke a similar scene that happened not too long ago, actually. It was when Peter was standing by a fire outside of a courtyard of the high priest, and he denies him three times. And this is found in John 18. If you can turn a few pages back, John 18, verse 15 to 18, and then 25 to 27. It says this Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Skip to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. So we see Peter is denying Jesus 3 times just to save his own skin, right? This is after Jesus told him that you will fall away, that you're going that that you're going to the 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 shepherd will strike the sheep and they will all scatter, right? And he, Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. And in other versions of the story, in other, other Gospels, after the rooster crows, it says, Peter went away and wept bitterly. He knew right away what he had done. But in John 21, we see a beautiful restoration, right? Jesus restores Peter um, in a, in a callback to the trio of denials. He restores him with a, a, a question of, Peter, do you love me? And this passage by itself is well-deserving of a sermon, I, I, th- I think, Pastor Myungwa gave a sermon about it two years ago. Um, but I just wanted to point out that there is a familiarity in these events. I don't want to go too much into the detail of that. So I just wanted to point out that it's another case of deja vu. So there's the trial by fire. That's the second deja vu. And the third deja vu, the more than these declaration. If we look at John 21, 15, Jesus begins a conversation after breakfast with a question to Peter in front of everyone else. So all the seven disciples are there, and Jesus, he doesn't pull Peter aside to the left or to the right. He he says with everyone around, he says, Peter, do you love me? This is a pretty crazy thing to happen because if you look back at Mark 14, it's a callback to a declaration that Peter made before. Mark 14, 26 to 31 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, first of all, before we get into the deja vu, first of all, I'd like to point out that this is a pretty big event. And Jesus, it's, it's the lead up to the crucifixion, right? It's like the, the grand finale, right? And it's like the main event. It's like the Super Bowl, right, of, of church history. And Jesus gives one of the worst motivational speeches ever. Right. This is right before he's gonna to go to the cross, and he gives them a speech that basically says, You're gonna fail. Okay? In any sport, okay, in any sports competition, like like football, in basketball, in anything, or even in a war, like a general goes up, right, and he says, We're gonna go out there, we're gonna win the battle, do it, stick to your training, we're gonna win, right? But Jesus does the exact opposite of that. He says, We're gonna go out there and you're gonna lose. What a speech, right? what does peter say even though they all fail even though they they all fall away i will not jesus what is he basically saying he's saying i love you more than these guys do jesus is using this question peter do you love me more than these he's saying remember that time you said that one thing And he's saying it in front of all of these other disciples because Peter did the same thing, right? Even though these guys fall away, I will not, Lord. This is the third deja vu moment, the more than these declaration. So I pointed out three likely um, deja vu moments, callbacks that Jesus uses in this scene. But what's the point? The point. What's the point of Jesus calling back these moments for Peter? What's the point of Jesus bringing these bad memories, pretty much, right, back up to Peter? It shows us that Jesus, remember Jesus, the Lord of the universe, he can command the wind and the sea. He can command the fish of the sea. He uh, he had just taken the sin and shame of the world on the cross and was buried with it, and he was just risen again from the, the grave. He conquered death through his resurrection. This same Jesus was saying, Peter, I'm your friend. And this is the kind of relationship that Jesus is wanting Peter to remember him. You have to remember the context that I shared at the beginning was that right after the resurrection, the disciples were confused. They were fearful. They were full of fear. They were, they had no idea what to do. And Jesus even showed himself to, to them on occasion, two times before this, right? This is the third time. And their expectations for Jesus were just crushed when he died. And Jesus knew in this moment, in this time of fear and confusion, in this time of crushed expectation, that the disciples did not need a master. They did not need a political leader. They didn't even need a counselor. Jesus knew that in this moment that what they needed was a friend. And isn't that what we all need in times of distress, in times of failure, in times of crushed expectation? In times of confusion, don't we all need a friend? Jesus is using these deja vu moments, these callbacks. He's, he's talking to Peter in a way that is intimate, that only two friends will know, that only Peter will understand, right? These callbacks, these deja vu moments, Jesus is using them similar to how friends share silly moments with each other. It's like, hey, remember that time when we did this stupid thing and that happened? Right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's sharing the intimate, embarrassing stories that Peter has shared with him. And this is what friends do. Friends bring up these stories because they are friends. Right? In fact, only friends can bring up these kind of stories for the fact that they are friends. Someone that is not your friend, that brings up an embarrassing story about you, is not your friend, right? They're doing it to cut you down. They're doing it to embarrass you. They're doing it for the, the matter of just bringing you down. But friends do these things to make fun, but also to, what? To forgive, to have a good laugh, to remind themselves that we shared these moments together. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus brings up these stories of Peter to show him that he shouldn't feel shame about what's happened and that he's forgiven him. He brings these stories up to build Peter up and to restore him. He brings up these stories to show Peter that he is his friend. And this same Jesus, who knew Peter so intimately, who knew Peter's faults and failures, and yet chose to be his friend, this same Jesus is still alive today. Remember, Easter— was last week. And we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection that Jesus will never taste death again. That same Jesus is alive today, and he calls us into relationship with him. He calls you and I, friend. In John 21 5, if you look at that verse, when Jesus calls out to the disciples from the shore, it says, What? Children, do you have any fish? But the interesting, interesting thing about this phrase, uh, here in the ESV, it says, children, right? Do you have any fish? If you look at the NIV, it says, friends, do you have any fish? So which one's correct? Children or friends. If you look at the Greek, yes, I go to seminary, so I studied Greek. If you look at the Greek, um, the word that is used there is paideia. Everyone say paideia. Paideia. If you can guess what that word leads to, uh, in the English language, paideia, uh, we get the root pediatrician from that. Pediatrician. So that's the children's doctor, right? Paideia. But that's an interesting choice of words because it sounds a bit condescending to say, oh, hey, children, do you have any fish? Right? But many scholars agree that when it's used in a conversation, children, paideia, do you have any fish? It's actually a colloquial term, which is like an everyday term that's, that connotes, like that denotes that you, you two are very close. It's, it's similar to, to English people saying, lads, hey boys, do you have any fish? Or in English, it would be like, hey dudes, do you have any fish? Right? It's, it's not like children, I'm looking down on you, but hey dudes, hey bros, do you have any fish? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's calling them friends. Do you have any fish? And this was the level of intimacy that Jesus had with his disciples. He wants to call us friend as well. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to a friend that knows us intimately and that forgives us for our failures? I have three applications. Um, sadly, I did, not, I did not come up with them. I took them from a Tim Keller sermon. Um, but it was for the same... Uh, scripture, but it, he had a different sermon. It wasn't, I didn't just copy his sermon. I just took the three points, okay? If you want to listen to that sermon and, and prove that I didn't copy his whole sermon, I just copied the applications, um, you can go listen to it. It's called Eating with Jesus. Um, but anyway, the points, uh, they all start with F so that they're easy to remember. The first is feast with him. The second, fly to him. And the third, fail with him. So first, feast with him. Feast with him. So, I'm convinced that 90% of friendships, or my friendships at least, they begin and are sustained by eating with people. If you think about it, like, more than half of your, your times with friends are just eating. Hey, let's go eat this. Let's go eat that, right? And if we're, if we're going to be friends, honestly, if we're going to be friends, then we have to eat something good. If, if it's bad food, then I'm not going to have a good time, and it's, it's probably not going to be good. So, but Jesus, he's doing the same thing, right? He shares a meal with his disciples, on the beach, on the seashore. He's sitting around a fire, and he's telling stories. Hey, remember that time, Peter, that you did this thing? He's sharing a meal with them. How can we do that today? Well, feasting with someone just means spending time with them, right? How do we spend time with Jesus? We read his word. We talk to him by praying. We gather with his people. We meet with his other friends, right? That's what we're doing right here, right now. Last week, we shared communion with each other. Every Sunday, we come to Sunday to worship and seek his face together. That's how we feast with Jesus. These are all ways to feast with him. So that's number one. We have to feast with him. Number two, fly to him. The interesting thing about the overflowing fish incident um, is that it's very similar, right, to the first time that it happened, that first time that Peter met Jesus. But... There's also differences, right? If you look at the stories, uh, in the first story, the net started breaking, but in the second, it didn't. In the first story, Jesus was on the boat himself, but in the second one, he was on the seashore. Those are a few differences. But the main difference that I want to point out is the differences in reaction that Peter has. In Luke 5, when Jesus first calls Peter to follow him, Peter's reaction to the miracle is that of confusion, of fear, right, of repentance. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But what happens in John 21? We see a change to Peter. When John yells, it is the Lord. Peter's reaction is not a fear. What does he do? He puts on his coat, which is pretty weird because what what happens next, right? He jumps into the water and he swims as fast as he can to the shore. Why would you put on your coat? Like most people would take their coat off and then jump into the water. But he already had his coat off and he put on his coat and then went to him. Kind of weird. But this is what happens when a stranger becomes a friend. When you are a friend with someone, you go to them. You go to them. You fly to them in a crisis. You fly to them when you want to seek forgiveness. You go to them in happy times, but also in sad times. You just want to be with them because they are your friends. And whatever happens in your life, if you have a friend, you want to fly to them. That's what we see in Peter. So we have to feast with him. We have to fly to him. And the last thing is we have to fail with him. Fail with him. What does this mean, fail with him? Let's look at John 21, 15 to 19 again. Jesus questions Peter three times. Do you love me? And we already made the connection with Peter's three denials, right? So in a way, Jesus is asking Peter, hey, Peter. Remember that time you denied me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I remember. But then Jesus says, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus asks, hey, Peter, remember that time you failed me again? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I remember. But then Jesus says, feed my lambs. And a third time, Jesus asks, hey, Peter, remember that third time you failed me and denied me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I know. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is showing Peter, he's showing Peter and the disciples and to us that it is in the place of failure that we are best suited for service. He's saying, Peter, you failed? Good. Feed my sheep. Peter, you failed? Good. Now you're ready. Jesus doesn't want the proud He doesn't want the haughty. He doesn't want the ones that have everything figured out. He wants the people that are humble. He wants the people that are broken. He wants the people that have failed to do his work for him. He wants people that can handle suffering and failure because that's the kind of life that Jesus calls us into. He doesn't call us into a life of of success, Jesus doesn't promise us success. He only promises a life of suffering. Suffering is guaranteed, but success is not. If you look at John 15, uh, Jesus says to them, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But he promises to be with us in our persecution, in our suffering, so that we can endure it. Matthew 28, right before he ascends into heaven, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We can bear the suffering. We can handle the suffering because he will be with us in the suffering. When we become friends with Christ, we no longer see success as the end goal. We no longer see suffering as the end game. We see Jesus as our friend, and we say we can handle it. In fact, what does Jesus say? It says in verse 18 to 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. We glorify God in our sufferings. We glorify God in our death. And this is actually pretty confusing because how does Jesus foretell the kind of death that Peter would glorify God with? Where in that passage does it say, oh, Peter's going to die a certain death? Well, some some scholars, they believe that the phrase stretch out your hands, it was a euphemism or it was a, was a, a term that was used for crucifixion. Because when people were crucified, their hands were stretched out like this, and the nails were driven in. Their their hands aren't closed like this. Their hands were stretched out so that the nails can go into their hands. So the term stretch out your hands was a euphemism for crucifixion. And this is the kind of death that God was glorified in Peter with, right? This is actually the fourth and final deja vu moment. I call this the stretch out your hands moment. In predicting Peter's way of dying, through his martyrdom, through his crucifixion, he is calling back to what happened to him not too long ago. He is calling back to when he stretched out his own hands to be nailed to the cross. He is reminding Peter and the disciples, and he is reminding us that in the eyes of the world, that he himself was a failure. The expectations that the world had for him was that he was going to take over. He was going to take over as the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And because he was crucified, he was a failure. Jesus is telling us that he partakes in our suffering. He partakes in our failure. But he is glorified through our suffering and failures. That's the kind of God, the kind of Lord, the kind of friend that Jesus is. We are going to fail but we need to fail with him. We need to feast with him. We need to fly to him, and we need to fail with him. You know, I, I thought it was so interesting. I was, um, I was looking at the uh, scripture reading for today, and I thought it was so fitting to the message that I had, so I just wanted to read it to you as, as I close. Um, it was from Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. This is a sign of intimacy. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Saba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the friend that we have in Jesus. The one who sees us in our failures. The one who sees us in our shame, in our sin. The one who accepts, accepts us even though he sees all of that. And the one who knows us intimately, the one who hears our cry, the one who forgives our sins. God, we thank you for a friend that we have in Jesus, that we can overcome this world. We can overcome fear and failure. God, I pray that this friend that we have in Jesus would be real to us, more today. As we look on your word, as we look on your scripture, as we gather together in this place, I pray that you would draw near to us, God. And Father, help us to share moments with you that are precious, that we can look back on and, and laugh about, that we can say, wasn't that an amazing time? Wasn't that an amazing time of Glorification for you, God, where you turned this rotten situation around, where you turned this failure of mine into victory. God, I pray that this, this Jesus would be our friend today, that we would cling to Jesus, that we would run to Jesus, and there we will find comfort.